Hello, everyone. Welcome to Quantum Beats Podcast. I'm Parham, and in this episode, we have a very exciting discussion with Jack Hedery. Jack covers several aspects of quantum computing in a very simple to understand language. He talks about his book on quantum computing that is an excellent resource for those of us who are interested to practice the quantum computing applications. He talks a little bit about the history of quantum computing and more details about more recent examples such as the quantum supremacy experiment. At the time of recording this episode, almost a year ago, Jack was the director of AI and quantum at X the Moonshot Factory, formerly known as Google X, and he currently has the same position at Sandbox at Alphabet. So he talks about the connection of AI and quantum, in particular about machine learning and tensor networks. And then he shares his vision for the future of these fields. Finally, he concludes with what he calls three legs of quantum technologies, and those are quantum communication, quantum sensing, and quantum computing. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our audience? Sure. Um, my name is Jack Hittery, and um, I initially had studied uh, physics, math, and then neuroscience and AI. And um, then after my studies and research, I uh, went and built uh, two companies, uh, both in the tech space. And uh, then a number of years ago, realized that uh, quantum technologies were really uh, starting to uh, become uh, more of uh, reality and uh, decided to refocus my attention in the quantum area. And uh, so in addition to my work in AI, which continues, uh, really started to focus on both quantum computing, quantum sensing, and quantum communication. And uh, so it's been really very interesting last four or five years. Excellent. So how was the transition from your own field of work to the quantum computing? Did you find it uh exciting or difficult? Well, quantum computing is uh, a really fascinating field because it draws from four different fields. It draws from uh, quantum mechanics. Obviously, it's based on quantum mechanics, and uh, which I had great some great teachers for and uh, years back, back in university. And then uh, it also draws upon quantum information theory, uh, which is updated from shadow information theory. It draws upon theoretical computer science, which has always been very fascinating to me and complexity analysis and, and that whole field. And then of course, experimental physics. And when you think about how to build a quantum computer, what's fascinating is that there are seven, eight main ways now that the community has focused on to build a quantum computer. And each really uses different parts of experimental physics, um, you know, photonics, uh, NV center and diamond, neutral atoms, superconducting qubits. It's really very, very uh, varied and diverse. So it's, it's really, it's a, quantum computing is a really fascinating field because you really have to uh, put your fingers into so many other fields to bring it together. Right. So you think if you are from other fields, it shouldn't be difficult to move in because there is uh, so interdisciplinary. Field, well, I think right? yeah, no matter what field you start from, you're going to have to learn other fields. Right, if you right. want to really become an expert in quantum computing, uh, one has to really focus on uh, the areas that you may not know. So if you came from physics, uh, that's great. But knowing then more about theoretical computer science and quantum information theory uh, would be very helpful to get into quantum computing. So no matter what field you start with, it really uh, there's always going to be a learning curve. 
Excellent. And how do you see your own field in quantum computing? How, how, what do you think is the future of AI and what is the current uh, achievements uh, AI in quantum computing? Well, I think there's going to definitely be some interesting crossover points. Um, you know, in in our lab, we're looking at a number of different possibilities. We have published a few papers now about uh, graph neural nets on quantum. Uh, there's a, n- a number of interesting areas. There's also quantum-inspired models as well. So if you look at the idea of tensor networks, um, this is an idea that comes to us from another area of physics, Barham, which is condensed matter physics. And condensed matter physics, uh, among other things, looks at uh, the properties of materials uh, such as superconductivity. You know, how does a material at a certain very low cryogenic temperature become superconductive? Right. And so over the past 20 years, physicists and scientists in condensed matter physics have developed uh, a number of tools. One of those tools is tensor networks. And tensor networks really is good at uh, focusing on problems when you have very high dimensional data and you want to not look at every possibility, but just those subset of possibilities that really matter. And it turns out that tensor networks has potential application beyond condensed matter physics, and in particular into machine learning. And so we developed a library that is open source now. It's called Tensor Network, just one word. People can find it on GitHub and just by searching for it. And this Tensor Network library is open source and allows you to take advantage of accelerated hardware. So you can use GPUs and TPUs to really get a lot better speed and performance uh, for your tensor network applications. And I mentioned that uh, there's application now in machine learning. A number of groups, not just ourselves, around the world have been demonstrating some very interesting application of tensor networks and tensor network frameworks in machine learning. So for example, here at the conference, we were demonstrating that uh, if you have a transformer, which is a very a standard kind of neural network uh, that you can use for a number of different applications. And let's say you set up that transformer to generate sentences. Uh, part of the speed issue in transformers is that there's a number of fully connected layers. And a fully connected layer, as you can imagine, is combinatorially quite uh, computationally expensive. Okay. But if you replace those fully connected layers with a tensor network, then actually you get a lot of speed up. We're demonstrating at the conference 2x speed up, right? So that's a lot, you know, to take a state-of-the-art um, so model. and ha- running on a quantum computer? No, this is running on a classical computer. I that's see, what's so cool about it. Okay. Yeah, so this is a, it's inspired by quantum mechanics. It's inspired by the quantum mechanics of condensed matter physics, but actually you can run it on a regular computer. And the Tensor Networks has a long history with quantum computing as well. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's an application of machine learning that people who are interested in AI and machine learning, they can take a look uh, at the library and, and use it in machine learning applications. Right. Have you tried running this on your quantum computers as well? Well, I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we'll have to see as we scale quantum computers uh, in the near future, it's going to become more interesting to run these kinds of things. Right. But quantum circuits themselves... Um, have uh, as an origin, you know, a similar origin to these kinds of networks. And so if you look at the quantum circuits that that uh, we're running now and running in the future, there's a nice tie-in to the work in tensor networks as well. So so yeah, it's a very exciting moment in the field. It's uh, There's been a lot of great announcements in the last uh, right. year, two years. Can you tell us a little bit about the quantum computing announcement by Google? Sure, yeah. This is uh, all credit goes to our sister lab in uh, Venice in Santa Barbara. This is a wonderful uh, achievement by this lab. And uh, they were able to run a a particular circuit called random circuit sampling, particular uh, task 
on a quantum computer and also run it on a classical computer. And the classical computer they chose is the Summit Supercomputer. It's the number one supercomputer as logged by top500.org on those benchmarks. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very, very powerful computer right. uh, that takes up a few football fields and wow. uh, uh, needs... Not, not the quantum computer, right? No, no, this is the classical one. The classical, the classical one, right. one. Yes, How big very... is the quantum computer? The quantum computer, um, you know, quantum computer is interesting. People can go online and take a look. If you look up superconducting qubit, quantum computer, you can take a look at and see what, you know, see what it looks like. But basically right. we call it a chandelier in part because it kind of looks like a chandelier. Right. It's about a meter tall and um, it sits inside what we call a dill fridge or a dilution fridge. And okay. a dill fridge is a not the kind of fridge you'd have at home. Uh, so oh. it, it goes much colder than that uh, down to on uh, the order of seven millikelvins. So seven thousandths of a Celsius size degree above absolute zero. So right. if absolute zero is minus 273 uh, Celsius, then it's just seven thousandths of a degree above that. And so it's quite, quite cold at that point where the processor sits. Now, elsewhere in the dill fridge, it's, it's warmer. Uh, but that is actually very, very cold and give some perspective on that, Parham, you know, the, the, Temperature of space yeah. is roughly 2.7, 2.8 Kelvin. Right. So, so this is colder. This is colder than, than space. space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the coldest place in the universe is uh, often one of these. Too uh, warm for quantum computing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these cryogenic uh, type setups. So so that's a, a dill fridge. And then you have the, the chandelier in there, the quantum computer in there. The actual processor is only about um, a few centimeters by a few centimeters, you know, sitting at the bottom of that. Right. And you have many leads that, that go down there. Some of those leads are for the dilution fridge itself okay. uh, to keep it really cold. Some of the leads are for microwave pulsing. And that's actually how we uh, modify and operate on the, on the qubits. Mm -hmm. um, so this achievement by the lab in Santa Barbara in Venice is wonderful because it, on this particular task, it showed that on random circuit sampling, a quantum computer can perform exponentially better than, uh, than a classical one. And again, I call it a Sputnik moment because like Sputnik in October 1957, uh, the Sputnik satellite itself didn't do much. It didn't have uh, cameras on it. It didn't do a lot of, didn't have a lot of particular applications, but it was a Sputnik moment because it really alerted the world that a new era was emerging, uh, the see. era of satellites. And so the sim similar situation here, the point of this experiment in this demonstration wasn't that random circuit sampling itself um, is going to be necessarily the algorithm that we want to use for all kinds of things, although actually it does have some interesting applications. But it said it's a demonstration of a clear separation between quantum and classical. And this was envisioned going back now to 1979, 1980, and 1981. Uh, very often when people think about the origins of quantum computing, people go back to a speech made by Richard Feynman yeah. in 1980, where he said that nature is not classical, damn it, and therefore <laughs> we need a quantum mechanical uh, computer to really think about nature and understand nature. And that's absolutely correct. But I want to give credit also on this program here to Paul Benioff. Paul Benioff wrote a paper in 1979, which really spelled out all the key elements you would need for a universal Turing complete quantum computer. And often he's not given enough credit for that, oh, for that paper. He still... Well, maybe we'll try to put some links for this yes, paper. Yes, let's put a link to the paper. Yeah, 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 let's put a link to that paper. Mm -hmm. And so then 1980, Richard Feynman did give that talk and that was written up. Uh, most of the papers that Richard Feynman uh, published and even the books were really talks that he gave and lectures that he gave right. that were written up later by his 
by his students and other collaborators. And then also I want to give credit to Yuri Manin. Uh, Yuri Manin is also still alive and active at the uh, Max Planck Institute in Germany. And uh, Yuri wrote a book called uh, The Computable and the Uncomputable. Uh, that's the translation to English from the Russian. And that book alluded to and did describe a computer that based on quantum mechanical principles. So there was a number of people around that time, around exactly around 39, 48 years ago, who were all kind of converging on this idea that we should build a computer and it should be possible to build a computer based on quantum mechanical principles. And now, 39, 40 years later, we're starting to see that vision come true. Right. It's still very early days, but we're starting to see this vision come true. So why do you think it took so long for them to really commercialize these quantum computers? Well, I wouldn't call it commercial yet. It's still still early days. But but I would say that um, you know, 40 years is not the longest amount of time. Things have taken longer than that. Right. What's interesting, by the way, question for the history of science that we don't have time to really get into today, is why did it take so long from the development of quantum mechanics back in the 20s and 30s, right? So, of course, it started with a, a speech given by, a lecture given by Max Planck in the year 1900, written up in 1901, uh, his initial paper on black body radiation, and then, of course, followed by Einstein, 1905, and his paper on the photoelectric effect for which he got the Nobel Prize. Yes. Einstein got the Nobel Prize for that, as many re as many listeners will know, not for not his work for on general or relativity. special relativity. Uh, and then followed up by Niels Bohr and um, Heisenberg and Schrodinger and Dirac and you know so many of the greats who uh, developed quantum mechanics in those 20, 30 years. So here's an interesting question that I'll pose to the listeners and to the viewers of this podcast, which is, why did it take from 1930, when basically most of quantum mechanics was really now well understood, we had a framework, we had the understanding of how to look at the world from this perspective, till 1980, that's 50 years, right? right that it took to someone to realize, hey, we can use quantum mechanics to do computation. Now, you had many interesting people who could have made this crossover, right? You had John von Neumann, who was both very, very deep in physics as well as computation. Right. Um, there was Claude Shannon. There was Alan Turing. Uh, all these folks interacted with each other. They crossed paths at Bell Labs, at Princeton, at a number of different institutions. Right. And so it remains a very interesting question why it took 50 years for a set of very, very smart people yeah. to realize that hey, we can use quantum mechanics for uh, the purpose of computation. And that actually would have an advantage in certain cases over uh, classical uh, computation. So it, it's, it remains a very interesting open question. I want to go just go back to supremacy for a second just to clarify and make sure people yeah, lots of are, questions are aware of that. What that, is supremacy, first of all? Yeah, that supremacy is really about... Quantum supremacy. Yeah, the quantum supremacy yeah. is really about um, not that in all cases a quantum computer is better uh, than a classical computer, but it in, for certain algorithmic tasks, right? For certain computational So it's application areas. specific. So it's very application specific. Okay. And so the future, Parham, looks like not quantum or classical. We, we, we really think the future is hybrid. Oh, hybrid. And so what's very interesting, I think one of the most positive aspects of the quantum era that we're now in is that it's going cloud native, right? We're seeing so many announcements from so many cloud providers about offering uh, different access to quantum computers on their cloud. And that means that 
those who are viewing and listening to this today, no one has to buy a quantum computer. Oh, <laughs> we, they can just news. go online. It's very expensive. Yeah, very expensive. <laughs> to go online and for free access many, many different quantum computers. And I encourage the listener to really try many different quantum computers. And there are many interesting frameworks mm -hmm. from many, many companies. So and since so, you are from Google, how they, can they access the quantum computer from Google? Uh, it, Th that group has announced that they'll they'll be launching that on the cloud. Uh, they haven't given a specific date for that, but that will be coming online uh, as well on Google Cloud. And of course, many other companies, IBM, Amazon, and others, uh, Microsoft will have various other quantum computers on the cloud. So I think this is going to be a very, very exciting era where people will have access. If you're a startup, if you're a researcher in academia, uh, if you're just very interested in this area, you really, I, I really encourage you to experiment with some right. of these online platforms and, and, and try them out. And you have a nice book, Jack, about quantum computing. A lot of our listeners are interested to explore more. Uh, so can you talk, talk to us about sure. your book? Sure, sure. Happy to. Yeah. You know, we started teaching quantum computing to a number of people inside the company and uh, some partners. And uh, what became clear is that we needed a, a new textbook. It, we, you know, there's a number of great, wonderful texts that were written over the last 20, 30 years in the space, but a lot has happened, as you and I have just discussed, right. in the last two, three years. So number one, if you wanted to really get into the application side, uh, there's been some new uh, developments just algorithmically. So for example, QAOA, which is a application for optimization, Right, it's right. A, a method of optimization that was only developed in 2014 by Eddie Farhi and Goodman and others, and uh, so that was not really covered in some of the older books written before okay. 2014. Also, on the implementation side, for those who are interested in actually writing Python code, actual yeah. code, and running that code on actual like applied, uh, like yeah, really see quantum computers. Board. And even just playing around with it, again, those textbooks uh, obviously could not know. It's not their fault. They just couldn't know about it being written right. 10, 15 years ago. And so what I decided to do is take some time and really put a book together that would really be uh, an, a self-contained unit. So there's really three parts to the book. Part one is all the foundational work, uh, a bit of review of quantum mechanics itself, uh, ideas of superposition, entanglement, Born's rule, and other key elements of quantum mechanics just as a background. And then I move um, into the core operators and gates that we need. And what's fascinating is that those who are familiar with classical computing and the not gate and 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 or and nand and all those kinds of gates that we right. use in classical there's only one gate that we can bring over with us in our backpack from the classical world into the quantum world if we're doing this uh, this type of quantum computing. There are several flavors of quantum computing, I should note, but the majority of what we do is in this mode of, of uh, gate-based quantum computing. And in gate-based quantum computing, there's only one uh, gate that we can bring over, which is the not gate, and not that's only. the only that's okay. the only reversible gate. So a lot uh, of new things to learn. For right. So so we bring over the not gate with us. That's our first tool that we can use. If we have the state zero in the quantum computer, we can apply the not gate and go to state one, and and vice versa. But now we need a lot of other gates, and that brings us to the concept of the qubit. And so. The next part of the book really discusses the qubit and uh, the fact that we can represent the qubit in a variety of ways. And we go through 
I go through all the different operators such as Hadamard and CNOT and other kinds of, of operators or gates, we can call them, that we don't have in the classical world. The second part of the book, Param, after we finish all that introduction and foundation, really is the meat of the book. That is where the code is and that's where the introduction is to all the traditional, what I call the canon of algorithms that were developed over the last uh, 30 years to demonstrate interesting things on quantum computers. And so this is Deutsch, Deutsch Josa. Uh, this is right. uh, Bernstein Vazirani, Simon's problem. Very important. Uh, Shores, problems. Grovers, right. right? These yeah. are all kind of what I call the canon. Right. And any course on quantum computing, be it in a company or be it self-study or in academia, you'd want to cover this. But then, whereas most books in the past stopped there because they were written at that time, uh, in the book here, I move on into more recent activities, such as the application of variational uh, methods. These are VQEs and then QAOA, quantum walks, quantum machine learning. These are more recent topics that are now the subject of very interesting research at the cutting edge of the field. And the final third of the book is really a mathematics book. It's a math textbook hidden inside this book. Yeah, you need math to learn e some exactly. Part of it, right? But here's the good news. For the for the, the the core math that's necessary for quantum computing is linear algebra. And linear algebra is I think one of the most accessible uh, formats um, and forms of math. And uh, unfortunately, many people who studied linear algebra in university did not study it, of course, in the context of quantum computing. Right. And so uh, it really is a great idea to relook at uh, at, um, at linear algebra in the context. And that's what this section does. It brings in Dirac notation, Braquette notation, and other um, special ad adaptations we have of linear algebra in the context of quantum computing. Excellent. And the codes that you mentioned, the programming, how they can run it when they're reading the book. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so it's a great question. So I launched a GitHub site now. If people search for uh, GitHub and my last name and quantum, GitHub, Hittery, quantum, or, you know, any combination, some, something like that, they'll find this free website that's a companion to the, to the book. All the code is up there. There's uh, various uh, instructional tutorials. There's also problem sets. So if you're reading the book on a self-study basis, on an independent basis, or you're reading as part of a course, there's some really interesting problem sets. Uh, and of course, for faculty, we can email them the solutions as well. <laughs> Not for the students. Exactly. So, and so to get to our final question, we're running out of time because you have a talk uh, here at UBC. Sure. So what, how do you see the future of AI in quantum computing? Sure. I think it's it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Both these tools are very powerful and are all really at nascent phases. Uh, quantum technology is even more nascent than, than AI. AI has, had, AI has had a longer period of time of gestation. Yeah. Um, and we can trace connectionist architectures. Uh, the main tool that we have today in AI are these connectionist architecture-inspired uh, programs such as neural networks, and, and we call it deep learning now in general. And this goes back to 1943 in a paper by McCulloch and Pitts, you know, who identified that inspired by the brain uh, and the distributed nature of the nodal architecture of the brain, we can make some interesting new architectures in uh, computation. And so both of these are really fascinating tools. I think there's going to be interesting bridges between the two. Uh, and on their own, they're also going to be quite fascinating. But both have a long way to go to uh, reach additional maturity.
Okay, so you think there's a long way to... Yeah, and also I should say that another, another tie-in uh, is not just quantum computing, but I also want to mention to our listeners here today, Parham, that the other two legs of the stool of QIS, of quantum information sciences, uh, really should be noted, which is quantum communication and quantum sensing. Uh, a lot of the press and a lot of the uh, public is focused on quantum computing, and it's a great topic. And as you pointed out, I just wrote a book on it, so it's very fun. But... Uh, I also encourage the listener to really think about and look into quantum sensing and quantum communication. All three, computation, communication, and sensing, form three legs of the stool that we call QIS, quantum information sciences. And all three could have a tie-in to machine learning. So an example would be if we have a quantum sensor uh, that it says magnetometer, right? It's a magnetometer that's able to detect very small perturbations in a very weak magnetic field. Right. Uh, you'd have data coming out of that. You may want to apply machine learning to that data stream and look for signals in that data. So that's an example of where machine learning comes into play as Excellent. well. Excellent. So we'll try to cover that through your talk. Great. We'll probably broadcast it on the podcast. Okay, great. Excellent. Well, great to be with you here today. Thank you very much, Jack. It was excellent to have you here at UBC excellent. at CIDA Radio. Thank Thanks. you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something from this, please feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues. We'll give away a copy of Jack's book to one of our listeners. The book is called Quantum Computing and Applied Approach. And you can follow us on social media at Quantum Beats Podcast to get more information about the book and our next episodes. For those of us who are interested to learn more about uh, what we discussed in this episode, we will publish Another episode, which includes Jack's talk at the University of British Columbia, where he shares more details about quantum technologies and other topics that he shared in this episode. Finally, this recording was done at CITR Radio, at the University of British Columbia, and at the territory of Muscogee people. So we would like to thank them for hosting us. Finally, thank you very much for listening. And see you in the next ones.